Welcome back to the Lessons for Tomorrow podcast, the motivational poster in your ear. I'm your host, Tim Melanius, VP of Strategic Initiatives at AmericanEagle.com. In this episode, we're going to be diving into B2B e-commerce with our expert, Brian Beck, who's also an author and advisor. He has over two decades of experience in e-commerce and digital transformation, including 17 years as a VP and C-level executive. He is the author of the first comprehensive book of B2B e-commerce entitled Billion Dollar B2B e-commerce. Right here in my hands, I have it for those of you watching our YouTube channel. I'm thrilled that I just actually picked this up, so I'm a little late to the game on it, but I'm excited to be going through it. Brian, we've talked through things in the past at different conferences and uh, just really looking forward to this consolidated experience inside this book. You are a sought-after expert and trusted advisor guiding experts at manufacturers, brands, and distributors in creating tremendous growth from digital commerce. Your clients include some of the most prominent brands in the world. Overall, you have been in the B2B industry for a very long time, and you have partnered with other industry experts such as Andy Hoare, and previously you served as an e-commerce executive at Harbor Freight Tools. I mean, you're, you're you know, resume list here is amazing, Brian. I'm so thrilled to have you on the show today talking about what I assume has really just been your life of B2B e-commerce and how you've helped just shape this industry overall and guided so many people through it. So welcome to the show. Hey, Jim, thanks. And you, you gosh, you make me just sound old. <laughs> <laughs> I've been at this for a long time, as you said. Yes. And, uh, you know, the, the, the thing with the book is, you know, I really, I learned a lot along the way, right? 17 years as an operating executive, big and small companies, Harbor Freight and others. And gosh, you know, I just documented a lot of what I learned along the way, right? So some of it was consumer, some of it was B2B, but all e-commerce. And I've lived e-commerce since the late 1990s. So been around it for, for quite some time and, you know, made, made a lot of mistakes, but unfortunately did some things well too. So anyway, that's what the book is all about is, you know, how to guide, you know, how companies can can take advantage of these trends for their business. So thanks for having me, Tim. Absolutely, absolutely. And just just a couple more things on the book. We'll talk a little bit more about it, I'm sure, throughout some of the talking points. But before we get a little bit more into your background and your history and, and involvement with Amazon and everything, I want to highlight for our listeners a few key things that people said about the book. And I'm pulling these from the, uh, the back cover and, and inside of it. But Brian Smith from Farmer Boy AG. It's like a Harvard masterclass for B2B e-commerce. I think that's great. Masterclasses have been all the trend with COVID, especially in, in the past two years. Uh, we've got a comprehensive guide. You even mentioned that as well from Amit Gupta. And then really, I think the other one that I thought was great was just the insights about a great resource, a definitive reference guide. All of this is just so critical for not only executives, but anyone in the B2B space to just have as kind of a playbook on your desk and and reading through the, the lessons learned from the experiences that you and your clients have had. I think the other big thing for me is just as we talk through this, it, it fits the model of this podcast so well. We look for lessons from the past to apply in the present for success in the future. And so mm -hmm. this is the case studies, the lessons learned, and the insights from what you've applied with them. So let's make sure we talk through that today. But first, before we really jump into all of the, you know, what led you into the book and, and your experiences, let's talk a little bit about your your background in the past, right? How did you get into e-commerce? And how did you then specify into the B2B side of e-commerce? Yeah, no, great, great question, Tim. Thank you for that. And, you know, getting into e-commerce, gosh, we're going back. It was, I think, 1998. Okay, so I am officially old. I was working at AT&T, right? And at AT&T at the time, 
if you recall back, and well, you won't recall because you're younger than I am, but back in those days, bandwidth was a big issue, right? We had limited bandwidth and AT&T was putting in these big pipes that would help companies, uh, individuals, people, companies, et cetera, get better internet quality. And so we could do more things with the web. And as a part of that, this is the early emergence. As a part of that, we were at AT&T, I was in this corporate strategy group. We were starting to do things in, you know, I remember we had uh, this thing called A to B music, right? A to B music. It's, you never heard of it because it didn't really go anywhere. But, you know, the idea was we're delivering music over the internet. What a thing. Oh my gosh. And so this, this was my first foray into, you know, what was to become e-commerce and content and all those things. And yeah, and then really after I, after I did that for about a, two years, I, I went to work for an e-commerce consultancy. Again, I'm testing how, you know, how old you are, Tim. It's called a, a Scient. I don't know. If you oh, yeah. Huh? I, Do you remember Scient? I, I, okay. Trust me. I'm, I'm old, Brian. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the science was, I, I was in my twenties at the time and we were you know, being paid far too much per hour to go in and talk about things. We had no idea what we were talking about, but you know, the, at the time the internet was going to break everything and, mm -hmm. and all traditional business was going to go away. And, you know, people didn't want to ever see people again. And, you know, it was sort of this ridiculous extreme that we would preach. But at the end of the day, it was an interesting time. We went public, we were a consulting company. We were working with a lot of big companies trying to figure out how they should apply e-commerce and, and digital to their business. It was a really exciting time. And we learned a lot early in those early days about what, what to do and quite frankly, more what not to do mm -hmm. <laughs> with e-commerce. So uh, anyway, that was, that's how I got into it. And I never looked back. I mean, the business changes so fast. I love it. It's so intellectually challenging and it's so um, it, it's evolved so fast. I mean, I was in consumer mostly for 17 years. Right, Harbor Freight Tools, PacSun, yep. I ran their e-com for a while. And the B2B side, you know, I like to say, Tim, it makes me feel young again. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> you know, B2B is 15 years in many cases behind where the consumer side of e-commerce is. You know, look, in consumer, if you go out and you get a 5, 3, 5, 10% growth rate out of, out of your efforts, that's enormous. In B2B, because they're so far, many of these companies are so far behind, it is transformational on so many levels, introducing e-commerce into these businesses. Efficiencies, new revenues, new markets. There's so many things you can gain with it. And that's one of my chapters in the book is talking about ROI uh, from the effort. But it is enormous. And I, I love it because these businesses are foundationally solid. They have great products. They have great you know, service levels and differentiation. They're driven through traditional channels. We're just applying best practices and digitizing. And when they do it right, when the leadership's on board, it's really exciting what happens. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I love that you bring up the aspect of B2B commerce being the kind of exciting and young. And, and because of the difference between B2C and B2B, where is it at because of COVID and the pandemic and, and what happened over the past uh, almost two years now in your mind? Well, it's, it's actually fascinating what's happened with the pandemic. And actually, I released the book in, uh, I think it was April of 2020, right after the pandemic hit. I mean, who, who knew, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is we're going back a year and a half now. The book, I'm actually in the process of adding more to the book about the acceleration that occurred as a result of the pandemic. Really what I, the, what I saw, what I've seen as, you know, through the pandemic is an acceleration of what was already happening. It's not that, you know, the foundational things changed, the best practices changed, the elements of digitization changed or the need, you know, for customers to buy through e-commerce channels or learn and research. It just accelerated. And the other big change I see is with the sellers, right? The sell, meaning the manufacturers, the mm -hmm. distributors, 
the traditional B2B companies, they now have a new level of urgency. And, you know, my book was timely in the sense that, you know, that it's, I don't know of a lot of other material like it in the industry. I don't think there's another book like this. So it also caused a lot of interest. And so, you know, my phone's been ringing a lot, which is great. But uh, at the end of the day, it's, you know, it, it just has accelerated things. And uh, really, it changed how buyers, buyers that were earlier reticent to make purchases through e-commerce are now comfortable because they've been forced to. I think about some of these traditional industries. And we just saw the companies that were prepared for that really mm -hmm. capturing market share. And those that weren't are scrambling to catch up. And if they're not scrambling to catch up, we may, they may not be around in 10 years, yep. quite honestly. So. Yeah. And, and I think that's so critical, especially in today's day and age where, I mean, especially on the B2B side, I see just, you know, the impact of inventory and logistics right now with the delays, right? And, the you know, right now it's the big global chip shortage and everything, but it impacts so many areas where I think B2B is just as impacted, if not more than some of the B2C side, even though B2C side might be more the people who experience the rough experience of delayed you know, shipping. We, we were taught well by Amazon, right? Expect it in a day or two at, and, and, and you always have it. And then all of a sudden we, we get back to the five to seven day wait periods and we're kind of like, whoa, wait, this isn't yeah. the norm. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's right. And Amazon, as you mentioned, I mean, they really benefited from the pandemic across both B2C and B2B. Mm -hmm segments but i mean frankly they had challenges too and a lot of it was with fulfillment mm -hmm. um you know they're they call them fc's fulfillment centers were overwhelmed at the beginning of the of the pandemic so much so in one of the companies i'm involved with called Inceba, we run amazon programs for b2b companies and we saw it firsthand i mean amazon wouldn't accept new inventory into their into their fulfillment centers because they couldn't handle it mm -hmm. and that's pers that's persisted i mean they've added a lot of people they've added cap capability and throughput but it's there's still some lagging impacts from from COVID, and, yeah. and it's Amazon was up forty percent last year. It's that's insane. It is numbers. To think about it, right? <laughs> it is. So, and so, yeah. where do you see and and why more so importantly, Amazon investing in B two B? Right. So they've had a B two B channel for a, a long time now. But where do you see that growth continuing on the Amazon side? Right. They were they were saying no to a certain business, right, because they just couldn't tackle it at that time. But I know that across the U.S. And, and in other countries as well, they're continuing to build out large warehouses and distribution centers. And, you know, where do you see that going and, and why are they continuing that investment side for B2B? Yeah, great question. So Amazon and B2B is a story, I think, of Amazon's DNA. What I mean by that is they started Amazon Supply, you may remember this, Tim, back in 2012, and mm -hmm. it didn't really work. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it was a separate website. It didn't have the assortment. It didn't have a lot of the characteristics that were important in B2B, which includes, by the way, people in the street, mm -hmm. understanding the needs of the B2B buyer and, and the B2B seller. So they relaunched, they retired Amazon Supply in 2015, and they launched Amazon Business, which was not a separate site. It's the same website. But they also started hiring people out of the field of, you know, different fields. They're hiring distribution. They're hiring out of, you know, manufacturing. They're hiring out of uh, industries where the people understand the throughput. I bet a lot of your listeners on the podcast today and on YouTube are being recruited by Amazon. Amazon mm -hmm. has 1.3 million employees. Anyway, the point is they learned a lot from that Amazon supply. And when I say it's a story of their DNA, 
they failed at a lot of things and they learned what they needed to do differently and they applied that in Amazon business. And so they're, they've hired people in the field. They're adjusting their experience to be one that is more B2B appropriate. They're doing things like offering credit terms to people who are buying through Amazon business, being into businesses. They have requests for quote functionality, a whole bunch of things that the B2B buyer needs. Now, why is Amazon investing in B2B? Well, because it's inefficiently served and there's huge margins and yeah. there's inefficiency in the traditional supply chain. And a lot of the mid-market, particularly distribution, is not advanced. I mean, it's really quite sad. A lot of B2B companies are not at the level they need to be with digital. And I'm not just talking about e-commerce. I'm talking about everything digital, digitally enabling the sales force, content, everything that a buyer needs your buyers, they're not going to fax in an order anymore. You know, their millennials are going to be 75% of business buyers within two years. You think they don't even know what a fax machine is? <laughs> right? Yeah. So anyway, my point is, why are they investing in it? It's a big market. It's inefficiently served. And they have a lot of the core competencies. And also, all those buyers, all those millennials, they're Amazon natives. They're mm -hmm. already using Amazon for their personal lives. Yeah. This is a no-brainer. Amazon business has become the fastest-growing part of Amazon. So uh, it's it's a real mover. But now, if I'm a manufacturer, right, to me, that's an opportunity because it's a distributor. It's a change in my buyer, ultimate buyer's preferences. And I say that in the book, talk about that in the mm -hmm. book. If I'm a distributor, I got to be paying attention to what Amazon's doing. It can be a revenue channel for me, but I also need to understand how Amazon is setting the bar for the buyers that I'm trying to retain and acquire because they are in e-commerce. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that absolutely makes sense. And I think that you brought up a key point about people who are digital Amazon natives, right? The younger generations. I would say they're just digital natives overall. That's what they go to for everything. I think that's also the shift in the B2B space. I know for a lot of the B2B clients that I have done consulting with, it has been the younger generation starting to come in who don't want to accept the facts that some clients still have i'll admit and others who definitely have a stronger sales force that is of different generation who was very used to talking on the phone we have the younger generations who don't want to pick up a phone that's almost like it's an, an anxiety to dial a phone number for them and they'd rather chat and text and, and and use messenger apps so you know those live chat features into b2b and all that that's amazon has really just trained people you can completely do everything online you can interact with customer service without calling a phone number and you can process returns, orders, et cetera. Right. And on the B2B side, we'll do fulfillment for you. So I think that's that's critical. I think kind of talking about a few things and and, and especially pulled from your book, the history of Sears. Right. And, and just kind of the, the unfortunate fall right. of them as a company. Mm -hmm. And they were really set up well to be the Amazon back in the day with the catalog format that they used and the warehouses sure. and the, the facilities to do all that. But they just didn't connect the dots with how big I feel digital and e-commerce would be for them as a business. And when we look at that, you, you talked about the uh, digital customer centricity and really just looking at how Amazon came out and just the leadership there driving that home first and foremost versus... Mm -hmm paying attention to shareholders and doing all the other aspects that are the financial side, they really focused on the customer first. In the B2B yes. world, you're focusing on the buyer, the seller, and you're connecting both of them. You're just doing it in a digital format now. Absolutely right. Yeah, I say, it's funny, Tim, I say, don't be the Sears of B2B. Uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's the first case that I, my chap, first chapter is called The Time Is Now, right? Mm -hmm. And I talk about, I give the case study of Sears. 
And it, it really is a cautionary tale, I think, particularly for distributors. We think about what Sears and others like them didn't do. I think in some ways they get a pass. I mean, it's, you know, they're not in business as much as they used to be, but in some ways, some of the consumer companies get a pass. They couldn't have predicted what happened, what was going to yeah. happen with e-commerce. B2B companies don't get a pass because the precedent is there. Mm-hmm. Distributors, you, and I, I talk to manufacturers a lot too, but I, in particular distributors, if you are just you selection and price-based, you will not be able to differentiate on that going forward. And guess what? The relationship stuff I hear it constantly. Oh, we're relationship based. What's all you know? Our, mm-hmm. our customers don't want e-commerce. BS. Yeah. Your customer wants wants e-commerce. If you don't have enough adoption, like I hear companies put up e-commerce sites. Right. I was mm-hmm. spoke, speaking at a conference last month, and you know, talking to electrical and and and, and plumbing distributors and others. I had a bunch of them tell me, hey, you know, my, my customers don't want e-commerce. <laughs> I call foul on that. I don't think that's true. I think you're not doing a good enough job in e-commerce to make their jobs easier. Yeah. If all you're doing is, a, you know, a basic job with e-commerce, you know, it's a price and selection and that's it. You're not actually using what you know best, which is your knowledge of the application of those products or, you know, making their workflows easier. You're not doing enough. You're not. You're just thinking about it wrong. You're not doing a good enough job. Customers want e-commerce, mm-hmm. and and the customers that do it well are getting 30, 40, 50 percent of their revenue from digital channels. Yeah, and so and you see this, Tim. I mean, in your business, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you must. Oh, absolutely. And I think the other key thing there too is when you actually do have that e-commerce aspect, they spend more than they would if they were still just ordering through other aspects of just normal channels for B two B. And for me, I think the, the, what I've really seen is there's a lot of times too, where they, oh, well, everything's so custom that we have in our systems internally and the effort, because each customer in the B2B world is unique and we have to market to them exactly. Our price list for them is different. Guess what? We've been there, done that. We have customizations. I have dealt with priceless at the individual buyer level at the same account for different regional orders. And that back in the day, it was a lot of flat files and you would up, upload all that into the system and process it. Nowadays, it's microservices and APIs to connect in and we build out middleware layers that connect all your systems. So it doesn't matter the age of the system. We can get data in and data out. It's a matter of just ensuring that you've organized those connections. And to your point, right, I would call follow on them as well. E-commerce is Absolutely. there. It's not only there, it's here to stay and only grow the opportunity for your business. Absolutely, Tim. You know, it's interesting. I hear a series of, if you want to find a reason not to do e-commerce, it's not hard. Mm -hmm. Okay, so my systems are too complicated. My customers don't want it. My sales force will fight back. I don't want channel conflict. You know, I want to empower my channels. I don't want to, you know what? You can find a reason not to do it. But I I don't, long term, that's not the right answer. You have to be in this. And ultimately, it's about that discomfort of actually getting in and solving for these issues. Because if you're not there, there's going to be smaller, nimbler competitors that are, or big, giant competitors like mm-hmm. the Amazons of the world that are there doing a better job and capturing customers. One of my most favorite exercises I like to do, Tim, with manufacturers, I did this with a CEO, a big chain hoist manufacturer a couple of months ago, right? We went in and we searched on you know, this is a B2B business. You know, this is, they're selling these big chain hoists that lift up like boats and, you know, giant stuff. <laughs> yep. right? I mean, this is like, this. You know, I'm not using this at my house. This is, you know, big construction sites, things like that. He said, okay, well, let's do a search on Amazon and take a look at what, you know, let's do chain hoists. Let's look at chain hoists. Mm-hmm. 
we pulled up the search on chain hoist and then we saw all these products right that and he's like who are these brands and then we said and we said okay well how much revenue are these guys doing they had three four five million dollar individual products on amazon that had similar characteristics technical characteristics to his products he didn't even know who they were oh, wow. this is a well-established 100 year old you know company that is a leader in its industry my point is that the landscape is changing the level of the competitors not only for distributors but for manufacturers too if you're not aware and in the game mm -hmm. the industry is changing out from underneath you and you're going to become irrelevant over time because you know for example we think about search volumes right amazon is now responsible for almost 70 percent of search mm -hmm. product search yeah me. google is down only you know, like something like 25 percent if you're all your efforts are focused on google you're you're missing out on set you know 70 percent of the of the search yeah. volume around product. Oh, yeah. You know, it's so the world's changing, and that's what I love about e commerce. Uh, and I love about helping companies that are in the B2B field figure out how to best play in it. Because there's also a lot of subtleties when you think about Amazon and think mm -hmm. about Google and all these other channels, you know, in terms of what, uh, how to go to market without, you know, uh, hurting your traditional channels. Yeah. Example, right. You want, you want to maintain those. Yeah. Let's, let's unpack that a little bit more, Brian. So you want to go to market in multiple channels. So when we actually look at the options that companies have with selling on Amazon, is it all or nothing or should you have a multi-channel approach? How do you, you know, guide your clients when you're consulting on, on, on the right approach there? Because you just talked about how the product search volume is so big with Amazon compared to elsewhere. How do they do it the right way? Well, a lot of companies have this uh, misconception. There's only one way to, to deal with Amazon is to sell all their products on Amazon. The actual answer is you have many different strategic options. And it depends on the kind of business you are. So let's say you're a manufacturer, a traditional B2B manufacturer. So first and foremost, Amazon is not an all or nothing situation. Mm -hmm. It also shouldn't be your only e-commerce strategy. It's, it's a part of the stool, you know, the legs of the stool, as it were, right? So it, I believe that if, if a company engages in Amazon as their first foray into e-commerce, it builds the organizational muscle to do e-commerce later, to, you know, with your data, with your people, with, you know, how you manage, et cetera, you start becoming familiar. So first and foremost, I think it's a, it's a part of a strat of an e-commerce strategy. Secondly, if you're going to go into Amazon, let's again, say you're a product manufacturer, you can either, there's different ways to sell on Amazon. One is to sell to Amazon. That's called vendor central. One is to sell through Amazon. That's called seller central or three P which gives you more control. And, and frankly, I see a lot of manufacturers, moving to that 3P selling model because you can set the price, you can control your brand content, et cetera. The other thing is you don't have to sell everything, your entire product line on Amazon. You can sell a portion of it. Some of our clients even will even go and they will create products for Amazon, you know, specifically different branded products. Think about how you've traditionally gone to market. I mean, with your big distributors or if you sell the retailer, whatever you sell to, they're applying a similar thoughtful strategy is at the assortment level is important. And the one other thing I'll say is that, you know, you don't even have to necessarily sell on Amazon to control your, your presence there. You can use Amazon's tools like what they call brand registry to register your brand there and control your content. Even if you authorize and then authorize specific resellers or distributors who you trust and who will maintain your, you know, your map pricing or whatever your distribution agreement is and, and authorize them specifically to sell on Amazon on your behalf. That's a way that some manufacturers deal with Amazon and, and, you know, take advantage of the volume there, but also give some of it to the channel, traditional channel partner. So my point is you've got three or four different ways to go into Amazon. 
but I do believe it's important for companies, particularly if you're a branded manufacturer, to have a presence there because guess what? You know, like that chain hoist manufacturer, people are looking for your products, your category, and you're letting competitors in the game, in the conversation if you're not there controlling that. And frankly, if you're not controlling your brand search on Amazon, you're, you're losing too because there you've got, you know, if you don't control it, it will control you. There'll, there'll be horrible product presentation yep. <laughs> and low prices and just it's just a it's a mess. If you're yeah. not controlling it, you ought to be because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, Tim, if you do control it, it actually reduces channel conflict. It sounds counterintuitive, but by going to Amazon and, and having an active Amazon program, mm-hmm. you actually reduce your channel conflict versus not having that. Uh, program in place. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely, Brian. And that's such a good nugget for everyone to understand that by managing that channel conflict, it's not that you even have to sell or put your entire catalog for sale up on Amazon, but manage what competitors are also potentially putting up similar products for. Or Mm -hmm. also, I've had some instances in the past with clients where they've had other distributors So a manufacturer goes out, they have multiple distributors, other people are putting product up onto Amazon channels. And to your point, the imagery looks terrible. The descriptions are copy paste from the, you know, distributor or from the manufacturer site or from another distributor. It's there's so much management and just control that you can bring to your organization with your catalogs presence and experience in Amazon that it's important to have a plan there. It's not again, to your point, you don't have to sell everything there. You don't have to put mm-hmm. everything up there, but know what is up there, what your competitors are putting out there. I mean, to find a brand new competitor in that example you gave, that's huge because that is happening. I look at, and this is a little bit more on the B2C side, but from a B2B perspective, you go and you search for cables on Amazon. This is one of my frustrations of, as just even like in Google too, the amount of information, the amount of product now that's also out there is the noise. And you look yeah. at it and you go, Okay, you know what? That's the same company. They created five company names and put five different, you know, brand logos on the same product and spit it out so they could compete with themselves with all their pricing and everything and 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 whatnot. But mm-hmm. from the B2B side, that presence and experience, like I mentioned before, are so critical because again, that's the first experience that your brand and product is having now. Just like it used to be that you're, you know, when you search for Google and, and the homepage used to be the first page in back in the day of the experience of a website. Now your first experience might be a product page in Amazon. It might Absolutely be right. it might be a landing page elsewhere and, and other marketplaces, too. I know we're, you know, the heavy hitters, Amazon, obviously here. But I mean, for B2B marketplaces have been a big spin up over the past several years. They've been around, but I, I really have seen a focus on those in the past three years as an yeah. alternate area outside of Amazon. I agree with you. And actually, what we're seeing, Tim, I'm observing a substantial number of niche marketplaces mm-hmm. that are growing outside of the Amazon world. These are, you know, industry specific whether that's medical products or building products or chemicals or even I saw one recently that was like, like scrap metal, believe it or not. I mean, like all <laughs> kinds of, seriously. Yeah. Well, I mean, you think about it, right? It's almost an evolution of distribution because, you know, if you can create a bespoke experience for your industry and you understand the workflows You understand how to bring what the buyer needs. And again, it's that focus you were describing earlier on the customer and Amazon that Amazon does so well. If you understand the customer's use case, you can build a marketplace model or just straight e-commerce into these verticals and have success. And I believe compete successfully with Amazon. 
but also, you know, win share from some of these traditional distributors who are not moving or not mm-hmm. doing what they could be. So I see an enormous amount of sort of marketplace interest in the market. And I'm talking about company owned or pure play marketplaces that are industry vertical specific. Does that make sense? Oh, it does. And I think that we're only going to see that continue to grow as the manufacturers and and distributors start to band together. And we have a lot of uh, electrical companies and supply companies and manufacturing and distributors and the products and the regional aspects of what brands can be sold in what regions and the agreements that are there. It's such a way to continue driving it, but also still driving the in-person experience, right? I still might need to pick up in store for a project. It's not, I'm going to wait for it to be delivered. And when you start to deliver through on that, that's just an incredible customer centric vision versus just, oh yeah, we only offer shipping. They still maintain those kind of warehouse pickups, but it's also Mm -hmm. their distribution centers. We've seen a lot of B2B companies who have started to add that pickup at warehouse now. And I think especially in the past year or two, with the pandemic, right, with just the the lack of in-person is the buy online, pick up in store applies just as much for B2B sales as it does for consumer sales. Absolutely. You know, we learned this years ago in consumer. I remember at Harbor Freight at PacSun, we would have, you know, extended aisle in the store, right? So we'd have, you know, the ability to offer more products than we could stock in the store. But also we had buy online, pick up in store or reserve, you Mm -hmm. you can reserve it online or pick up the store. That's huge. And quite frankly, you know, I don't believe that in-person and B2B is going away. I think Mm -hmm. it's just becoming more digitally enabled. Gartner released a study recently that showed that all the way through the purchase cycle in B2B, from the very first bit, which is, you know, researching product all the way through to post-purchase, internet, the e-commerce, digital, and the physical salespeople worked together mm-hmm. the whole way, meaning that the customer isn't just relying on one or the other. There's a misconception that it's, oh, e-commerce is just e-commerce. It's its own thing. In B2C, we learned this a long time ago with omni-channel retail. They work together. You yeah. know, the, the customer looks online, they may discover something, but they also have questions they may, that may need to be you know, discussed. And in B2B, particularly with more complex products, you, know, you think about Case studies in the book, for example, from big ass fans. I don't know. <laughs> oh yeah, they're great. I, honestly, even just going to their site is a fun experience. So if I you've know, never done it for the listeners, you, you got to look at big ass fans. I remember the first time I was at a uh, a wedding reception that was actually at the Vermeer in Pella, Iowa uh, plant uh-huh. facility. And I was like, ah, this is a really unique location to have a reception. I looked up and there's these giant fans. And I was like, wondering myself what the heck that's the biggest fan i've ever seen and then of course there's this branding on it big ass fans i'm like oh what a name such that's a great, great name anyways continue sorry that was my little no, tangent no, no, it's okay <laughs> it's really funny and actually that of all the you know i work with a lot of b2b companies and you know folks are like well you know oh adhesives i don't know that business you know like there's mm-hmm. lots of businesses people don't know big ass fans is one that people know because if you've been in an airport mm-hmm. or a construction facility or even like a you know factory or a um an arena, oftentimes these fans are in there because they're they're just huge. My point was just that, you know, as you think about project a product like that where there's, you know, it's really an HVAC product that makes heating, ventilating, air conditioning systems more effective, right? It moves air. But there's a lot of consultation that has to happen. If you're installing these in certain applications or certain environments, you need to know a lot of technical things about how to install it, what do you need in terms of the supporting infrastructure, where to best place it. 
that stuff is, is some of that can be handled online, but a lot of that's handled by experts. Yeah. So, you know, that, that intersection of digital and physical is going to stay. We're not going to see that kind of thing go away. Mm-hmm. But that salesperson or that technical engineer who's, who's doing the sale or consulting to that big ass fans customer needs to be informed by digital. They need to know what they looked at. They need to know, mm-hmm. you know, what they want to present enough information on the web to engage the customer so that they, number one, when they're doing research, they, you know, they, they actually end up contacting them and allow them to purchase it because quite frankly, the, the sales person may do a, a great job selling it, but that customer might, may want to just close the sale online. I have a number of case studies in the book about that where, you know, companies are getting million plus dollar shopping carts, mm-hmm. but the sales team has been involved all the way through the sales process that just so happens that the customer wants to wants to transact through e-commerce because at the end of the day, they made the decision they want to do it fast and they're done or they're reordering something they've already ordered. Right? Yep, so absolutely. There's a number of use cases around that. Thank you for tuning into the future by listening to the Lessons for Tomorrow podcast. This episode is part one of a two-parter podcast. Depending on when you listen to this, part two will have come out directly after this one in two weeks. For more information about the topics discussed today, check out the description of this episode. If you want us to cover a topic or submit feedback, email us at LessonsForTomorrow at AmericanEagle.com and let us know. Be sure to follow this podcast wherever you listen to them to stay up to date with us. While you're at it, if you wouldn't mind giving us a rating and sharing this podcast with others to prepare them for the future. And also don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. This episode is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. I'm your host, Tim Alanius, and I'll catch you in the continuation of this lesson.